The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Following the foot washing and that example of humble service, we pick up in John 13, 18, with these words of Jesus. After he said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, we go on. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit, and He testified, truly, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night, and this is God's holy word. The American playwright Eugene O'Neill wrote what some call his master work in the mid-1950s, a four-act play that was highly autobiographical which told about a New England family's descent into despair and dysfunction and darkness. And the play was entitled A Long Day's Journey into Night. That could have been the label or title of this episode of the departure of Judas from the intimate company of the light of the world to be plunged to the outside, away from fellowship with Christ and God to, by his own choice, go into everlasting darkness. Anyone who considers the character of Judas Iscariot for very long finds their mind filled, first of all, with a kind of fascination, but at the same time as fascination, I think, something like loathing. Actually, that's because this 
man is the arch villain of history, having sold Christ to his killers. And he's so infamous that from the first century until today, can you seriously imagine a mother on this earth giving birth to a male child and saying, I can't wait to name him Judas? I've never met a man named Judas. Maybe you have. I met a Jude one time, but not a Judas. And here's a name that almost has been removed from our vocabulary because who would want their child to grow up and be associated with the most infamous person who wore that name? Now, here's an interesting thing that happens that isn't true, and you need to be aware of this. When you see various movies or TV portrayals of the disciples or a Bible narrative of some kind, a Bible uh, retelling of the passion of Christ, isn't it true that the one playing Judas is usually sort of a dark-featured person, a person who never smiles, a person who looks kind of crafty, who sort of has a sneer on his face, and you say, oh, I know that one's a bad guy. You know, that's entirely inaccurate because you have to be reminded that Judas was elected the treasurer of the disciples. Now, I ask you, do we look for the sinister-looking, crafty, dishonest person when we're looking for a church treasurer? I really don't think so. And as a matter of fact, in order to be elected to that position, you would just surmise that Judas had to have some kind of a record of honesty and responsibility and reliability. In fact, if he were in our congregation, he'd be a ruling elder by now, for sure. We're not dealing with a man who was on the ten most wanted list of Jerusalem. We're dealing with a man who was upstanding and respected but in whom Satan did a terrible work. Now, in events that lead to the cross of Jesus, I do have to remind you that all 11 of the others didn't come off so well that night. They would all run away the next day from the cross. Peter would deny Jesus and so on. None of them really came out looking, you know, entirely praiseworthy for their behavior. But one of them came out as a satanic enemy. In fact, he's called by Jesus elsewhere a devil. And the somber conclusion about Judas comes like a crack of doom in the few words of verse 30 ending this particular section or paragraph, those words that we'll concentrate on a little bit before I finish. And it was night. There was a divine purpose in Judas being there. He didn't wander into this stage play by accident. He came there to be there by plan of God. Now, he wasn't an essential feature of the cross of Christ. You think about it for a minute. The enemies of Jesus knew at least basically where he was. They could have nabbed him during the day if they had wanted to, you know, do it less, making less of a fuss. It wasn't that they couldn't find Jesus without an informer or a betrayer. It's just that this way was a little more convenient. And so, if you wanted to say, if you were God planning this drama, you could have left Judas out. And Jesus still would have gone to the cross and still would have died as our Savior, died as the atonement 
in our place for our sins. But the sovereign God saw fit to include this twisted, tragic element about this man, a disciple gone completely wrong, gone over to the other side, because there are lessons that we can learn from this Judas factor in the passion of Christ. The setting, of course, is the aftermath of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in the upper room, giving them that vivid lesson about humility and service to one another. And the feet of Judas, we would understand, must have been outwardly cleansed there along with the others, but only his feet. His soul did not know the cleansing of new birth or of faith in Jesus. Jesus said here earlier in verse 10 to Peter, you, Peter, are clean, but not every one of you is And that's telling us that after three years approximately of daily contact with the Son of God on earth, Judas had heard all the sermons. Imagine if one of us, can you stop and think for a minute, what would it be like if you had heard Jesus preach even once? If you had heard the Sermon on the Mount, if you had heard any of his addresses, you would think, what a privilege. Judas not only heard every sermon, he heard every idle comment, every, every conversation over a campfire, every, you know, discussion as they walked down the road somewhere. He observed all the subtleties and nuances of who Jesus was, not simply a public presentation of him, but the real man up close in unguarded moments, you could say. And yet he came out of all that unchanged and unconvinced and not one to faith in Christ, proving the truth of what Jesus said, that except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Judas was not born again. That is a simple, easy conclusion. This man was so near to Christ who could have been his Savior and Lord, but he might as well have been a thousand miles away for all that had ever benefited him. What a challenge he is to consider. Let's see if God can teach us a few things we need to know. First of all, from our text, is a point that I think provokes as many questions, if not more questions, than it answers, but we must say it anyway. And the point is this. Treachery by Judas Iscariot points us to God's mysterious and eternal election. Treachery by Judas points us to God's mysterious and eternal election. Look at verse 18. Jesus announces, I know who I have chosen, but the Scripture must be fulfilled. He's referring to something already set and planned and actually exhibited in the Scripture. And then he quotes from Psalm 41.9, a word from King David, a lament from David. We know it refers to a particular incident. We can pretty much pin it down. And we had Time to study David, although I don't think I concentrated much on this point when we did study him. But David, we think, is referring to one of his dearest friends and counselors, a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was an advisor to King David, and when the revolt of Absalom came, remember that, Ahithophel decided to swing himself over to Absalom, apparently thinking, this is going to be the winning side. I want to be with the winner. And Ahithophel advised Absalom. But when Absalom's rebellion went sour, Ahithophel was so apparently overcome with remorse for what he had done. Guess what he did that will seem pretty fitting to this quote. 
he went out and hung himself. So King David had an experience with a close advisor, one who ate at his table, one who was trusted, who hanged himself because of treachery. Jesus is now implying that that laid a prophecy, so to speak, in Scripture for something that was going to happen immediately here. Now, when he told this, we read in the text that Jesus was troubled in his spirit in telling it. Of course, he was the Son of God. He was divine. Sometimes we think that as a divine being, he didn't have emotions or or loyalties or things to disturb him, but he's disturbed. He's upset to make an announcement and say, one of you men, one of you 12 who've been with me all this time is going to betray him. But you notice that he doesn't say it bitterly or vindictively or angrily. In fact, he says it, it seems, shaken that he has to announce such a thing. You know that I have the privilege of serving on a church staff for which I'm always very grateful. We have a wonderful church staff. I serve with four associate pastors who are my brothers, my trusted friends, with whom I am in great and constant unity. If you can find a crack in that unity, come and tell us about it, because I don't know of it. We're not supermen, that's for sure. But we have a great and a fine unity. We trust each other. We like each other. We work together so very well. And I've known these men from a a minimum of five years for one of them to up to 20 years. And I would stand with them in any cause and face any danger or trust them to represent me in anything. But just suppose the absurd possibility might occur that one of these men is right now preparing to hire an attorney, and next week he and that attorney are going to bring a lawsuit against me and accuse me of all kinds of malicious, false, venomous things maligning my character. Now, this is an imagined illustration, okay? We'll keep it imagined until the subpoena arrives, but just imagine one of these men is going to betray me and do so terribly and without grounds for doing it. And I haven't given him any. I I would be stunned. And I would say, John Light, why in the world would you do this to me? He's on vacation, so I could... (laughs) He'll hear about it later. But worse, what if I had known from the first day of my acquaintance with John Light 20 years ago that it was going to come down the line of two decades together and that he would do this to me. What kind of a relationship would we have had all those years? How guarded I would have been knowing this terrible thing was coming. Do you wonder that Jesus, who shares the omniscience of God his Father, knew all the time what was coming with Judas And it says he was troubled in his spirit when he had to make this announcement. Of course he was. What a terrible thing for somebody you have trusted, somebody you have worked with to turn on you this way. But Jesus found it necessary, you see, to disclose this, at least as a general thing. Now, it's very interesting to read this text and realize that the only one who actually realized who it was in this little transaction that goes on here, whispered at dinner, was John. 
By the way, John never refers to himself by name. He calls himself the beloved disciple in his gospel. He takes that anonymous pose. John knew quietly because of the signal that was given that it was Judas, but he didn't say to everybody, there he goes, he's the traitor. No. Why did Jesus think he had to announce it? Well, stop and think about that. Later on, if the disciples had found out this treachery with no advance warning, even in a general way, what might they have been led to think? They could have said, well, isn't this interesting? Jesus told us it was predicted that he must die and so on and that his enemies must kill him. But goodness, God must have lost control of the situation that one of our own was involved as a traitor. Instead of thinking that way, you see, by having this forewarning, even a broad general forewarning, they could reason this way and say, isn't it amazing? God was able to bring wonderful good out of this after the resurrection, even though one of our own was involved in this treachery, just as the Lord told us one would do. He prepared them with this forewarning. He said to them, I know whom I have chosen. And we think he alludes there not just to the choice of being a disciple and later called an apostle, but the choice eternally in the secret counsels of God, what we call what the Bible calls the eternal election of God. Matters that really begin to enter the stratosphere of theology and get into a realm that is too high and too holy for us to think of. But the Bible uses that word election and the word elect to designate the idea that God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit in all eternity had determined all things that were to come, knew who it would be, who would be their own people of faith. And Judas then was known. Jesus knew by eternal counsel, not by discovery a week before, but by an eternal counsel that Judas was there all the time. Now, we think we can know something about eternal election. We say, well, I think we know who a Christian is. The session, when it hears testimony from someone, hears, we hope, what we call a credible, believable profession of faith in Christ. But guess what? We're just men, and you can fool us. And you might be a great actor, and you might know all the great lines to say and come and give a wonderful, heartwarming testimony of how God has saved you. And we'd say, welcome, brother, to the fellowship of Westminster Church when we were welcoming Judas Iscariot. We acknowledge our ignorance that we could make that mistake. We don't perfectly know the election of God. We only know it approximately. Those who preach to you with great benefit from the Word of God, and you say, that's God's Word I'm hearing from that man might even be castaways. There have certainly been examples of that in history. But the point is that one week before Calvary, Judas appeared to be a grade-A disciple, known and trusted by all, when he was, in fact, a devil. The election of God is a deep and high mystery. His destiny was known in advance to God, the Father, and Christ the Son, but not to us. But I come right after that with a second point, and these two points pivot off one another. Because secondly, I say to you, Judas illustrates the rebellious free will of every human being. Now, put these two together. Treacherous, treachery by Judas 
points to God's mysterious eternal election. Treachery by Judas illustrates the rebellious free will of every human being. Now, there are some people who say, wait a minute, you have to choose one or the other. If you're telling me God determines it, okay, then it's just a fatalistic universe and God just does everything without consulting us, or then either it must be that we determine what goes on. Pastor, you can't have it both ways. But I'm saying to you, Judas was no helpless pawn. That's very clear. This man made choices as a free moral agent for which he was held responsible eternally before God. He was not dragged into betraying Christ, kicking and screaming against his will, or forced by some power outside himself. It was his rebel will which by degree, step by step by step, went deeper and deeper and deeper until he had turned completely from God. Now, again, our minds tell us either God determines things or we do. Guess what? The Bible says the answer is not either or. The answer is both. You say, how can you have it that way? Well, that's the great paradox. That's the great mystery of a sovereign God controlling his universe. Great minds who worked on our Westminster Confession put it in these words. I quote, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass, and yet his creatures are not forced to act contrary to their own wills. We don't understand that. We never will understand that. Don't vex yourself by thinking, I have to understand that to be a Christian. I've been trying for 40-plus years of study of theology to understand that. And at the end of the day, I have to confess, here's a great mystery, but God declares it, and it is true. It's what His Word teaches. But this mystery assures us that we are not chosen in Christ due to the advantages or privileges of our backgrounds or our exposure to Christian things or merely that we had the good opportunity to come close to, to be, have Christ preached to us and someone else didn't. This should be a severe warning to those who merely sit on the periphery of the people of God and think, well, you know, we go to church because my wife insists on it and I'm just going to keep the peace with her. Well, maybe it'll do me some good. Maybe some of the influence will bounce off and and that approximate association with the Bible and worship and a preacher and missionaries and other Christians and all that will do me some good on the final judgment day. I can assure you that it won't. Because Jesus said, except a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And there's a terrible thing in this text in verse 27. When Jesus made that gesture, and, you know, it has to do with the way they ate the meal, kind of a fondue sort of thing where you dip pieces of bread in a pot of meat or stew or something. It was actually an honor for the teacher to give you a piece of food. And we think that John was on one side of Jesus and Judas was on the other side. Again, a place of honor. And Jesus simply passed, and John was the only one that understood that little gesture. And it says, when that gesture, when Judas took that food, there was nothing magic about that food, but when he received it, it says, Satan entered into him. What does that mean? 
we think it certainly does not signify the first approach of the evil one to Judas. He had thought about this thing. He probably already consorted with the temple leaders, maybe took a down payment of money, considered what he was going to do. But what it seems to mean, and most commentators would agree, is that now it's like the spiritual handcuffs snapped shut on Judas. He had dabbled in this way. He had moved deeper into it. And now the situation locked itself on his wrists. And he was in a moment going to look. And one of the other gospels said when, when the different ones were saying, Lord, is it I? Is it I? Judas said, Lord, is it I? What a brazen thing to say when he knew it was. He would look Jesus in the eye and brazen his way out of it. J.C. Ryle, a commentator, said, here is how the devil works in a life. First he suggests. Later he commands. First he knocks at the door and asks permission to come in, but once admitted, he takes possession and rules the domicile like a tyrant. Satan took control, and Judas was no longer his own man, although he had made the choices that brought him to that point. Jesus did not compel Judas to betray him. All he had to do was stand out of his way and let his rebel will act itself out. Now, I tell you this thing as a third point today, and it's the part of this text that any pastor would be happy to admit, omit, if he could. But I would say this, Judas suffered subsequent to this, the terrible doom of all who die without Christ as their Lord. And I get that from the words, and it was night. You know, it would be wonderful if the Bible just left hell out of things. We wouldn't have to consider it. It would be great. I'd love it. But every time I'm tempted to think, let's just omit hell, I have to be reminded who taught more explicitly and boldly and clearly about hell than anyone else. Not the Apostle Paul, not James, not John, not Matthew. Jesus had more to say about hell, in fact, than he had to say about heaven in the Gospels. And thousands of preachers decide anyway, well, let's just, you know, soft pedal that, glide past it, don't say much about it. Jesus was the light of the world. Being the light of the world meant he was the diametrical opposite of hell, which means outer darkness and exile from the smile and the goodness of God. Jesus was the epitome of heaven. He is at the center of heaven. Fellowship with him is heaven. Heaven is a place of perfect fellowship and belonging with God and his people of faith, but hell is the opposite, a place of unrest, no peace, abandonment to everlasting regret and anxiety and meaninglessness from which a person is never released. Tell me you don't believe in that. It's Jesus you have to talk to, not me, because he clearly taught it in many other texts. Now, you may say, well, all that isn't stated here in John, but 1330 implies all that and comes along all other Scripture and brings other Scripture in to bear when it says these terrible words as Judas departed. And it was night. John isn't just telling us the time of day. 
He's speaking to what is said in Luke 22 when Judas came to the garden with the soldiers and mockingly made that gesture of kissing Jesus in recognition so the soldiers would know who to arrest. And Jesus spoke to them all and said, this is your hour. Let the power of darkness reign. Jesus would be in the darkness the next day, you know. Supernatural darkness sent from God as the wrath of God crushed his soul. But that darkness, awful and indescribable as it was, at least, we can say, came to an end. The darkness Judas went out and entered into, we can only compare. The best image I know in the whole universe to compare it to is a black hole in space. I don't know what a black hole in space is. I'm not much of an astronomer. I've read a little bit about astronomy. But it's something amazing. It's, it's this antimatter force, and, and things just go into it, and they never emerge again. That's the best way I know how to describe a, a black hole as the astronomers puzzle over these tremendous forces in space that swallow things up. Turning from the light of the world means you never see another gleam of the smile or the pleasure of God the welcome or the comfort of God, the compassion of God. You enter, in fact, into a realm of doom apart from God and apart from Christ. Now, there's two quick applications for me to make here. One is primarily for those who might not be believers or at least don't know whether they are. And that is I want to observe for you the tenderness of Jesus in this actually second-last encounter with his betrayer. The last was in the garden. Jesus is not angry. He's not sarcastic. He's not bitter towards Judas. And in fact, even in the garden, after that kiss that Judas gave him, he was more sad than vindictive. He was troubled. Our God is troubled over those who do not believe, over those who reject his truth. I find no place in the Scripture where the triune God is said to exercise any kind of glee over a lost soul. But if you hear me this morning, and you're not exactly sure where you stand with Christ, I want you to hear this and hear it very clearly. This wonderful Savior, Jesus, is ready to extend to you the same patience, the same tender regard that he extended to his most bitter enemy on the earth. Do you really think he's going to be more harsh towards you, more judgmental towards you, more inclined to reject you than he was toward Judas? You can expect a tender-hearted Savior, if you will turn to Him, if you will confess what you are, if you will tell Him, I need you, the light of this world, because everywhere I look is dark, He will certainly receive you with great grace. But one more quick application for the believer, and it's not really found exactly in this text. Matthew and Mark need to come in as supplements because They both tell us, as Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Everybody at the table had a response. It was almost not spoken by all, but the question was there in all eyes and on all tongues. Lord, is it I? 
Could it be me? Amazing. We can say this much good about the disciples. They didn't blame each other. They didn't say, oh, that guy Thomas over there, I've always been worried about him. No. Is it me? I'm capable of that. And even though it is right for every Christian to trust God for what we call the assurance of our salvation, the certainty that God has made us clean in Christ and we belong to Him and we cannot be torn away and nothing can separate us from Him, still it is a good thing for every disciple today to examine ourselves and sometimes ask this question, could it be me? What about my disloyalty? What about my fear to speak the name of Christ in that situation at work? What about the compromise of my devotion to Christ over here? Am I entertaining notions that are treacherous to the work of God in me? Could it be me? That's a good thing for a Christian to ask himself or herself that question. And so we conclude today with asking, are you truly a child of God by faith alone? in Jesus Christ, by His grace, by His enabling power, by His new birth? Or are you just one who sort of stands at the side like Judas and observes what these Christians are doing, but you're not really part of it? I urge you to look steadily with trust and faith and hope to the one who is the light of the world. Look to Him now while you can, Because everywhere else that it is possible for you to look, the situation is very, very dark indeed. Our Father, I pray that you, even by this sober, tragic figure, would show us your wonderful heart, show us the heart of Jesus. Here he was, just hours from his horrible suffering, and still extending to this traitor that if he had come, if he had turned, if somehow in your sovereign plan he at the last minute had forsaken the whole thing and thrown the money back and said, I won't do it, he could have been saved. Thank you that you're ready to receive somebody here who's got a need like that. They're lamenting that they've been so far away from you for so long, you probably aren't interested in them anymore. Show them otherwise. Father, thank you for the grace of the cross. Thank you for being the light of the world because we're scared of the dark. Amen.